We're going to start some slides, but as we're doing that, I'm going to read our passage from Revelation chapter 3. Hello? You were going to share? (laughs) Okay, now that we got that settled. Not really, but... Okay. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Uh, not we're verse 1, verse 7. Uh, we're at the church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, yet have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Well, amen. Now, Turkey uh, is where all of the modern-day Turkeys, where all these seven churches are. And this church, Philadelphia, um, Al-Ashahir, is the city that is built over where Philadelphia was. And they just built it right over top. And so there isn't a lot of uh, excavation as far as what Philadelphia was in times past. Philadelphia is the youngest of, two, uh, of the seven cities Jesus addresses in Revelation. And let's go to the next slide. And that's the modern city of Al-Shahir. And now, it was founded in 189 B.C. It was established by King uh, uh, Eumenes II of Pergamum, and it was uh, about 197 to 160 is when he lived. <clears throat> now, he had, next slide, he had a brother that he really loved, his older bro- like his older brother. And, and, and so this is in memory of his brother, he built Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, or one who loves his brother. Today, Alice here. Um, Alicia here is uh, an agricultural community. Next slide. And they have the most amazing grapes and wine industry there. It's located because it's located on a fertile plain with soil that is rich in nutrients. And so it has the ability to hold the moisture because of the ash content. It's a volcanic um, area. And and this area was known... uh, 
for the export of raisins, although more lately they've been exporting more of the wine and the grapes or the fresh fruit because it's less labor-intensive than, than the raisins are. One of the major setbacks for living in a place like Philadelphia in that day and still today is that area experienced a lot of earthquakes. Next slide. Oh, there it is. And, and, and you see right where that, um, and we know that there was a major, major earthquake in Turkey here the, a couple of weeks ago. And that was on the, on the east side. The west side is just as dangerous and just as volatile. The dark red, right where that um, little squiggle is on the left there, that's right about where Philadelphia is or was. And so it is, it is pretty, um, it's pretty volatile as far as earthquakes and all of that go. And, and so people, as a matter of fact, in A.D. 17, the same earthquake that leveled Sardis also leveled most of Philadelphia. I mean, totally leveled it. And, and people stayed outside of the city for as long as three years after that one in tents and temporary shelters while they rebuilt the city. Um, now, the, the interesting thing is their temples were built to withstand earthquakes. And now, they did this by building the pillars on charcoal. And, and so they, they were kind of, they, they kind of moved with the, with the earth. And, and so consequently, a lot of times after an earthquake, the only thing left standing would be the pillars of this temple. It's pretty, pretty quite amazing, actually. And so people stayed outside. Now, um, for this reason, um, now, probably the most famous uh, tourist attraction in Philadelphia, next slide, is, are these columns. These, uh, now, the, that's all that's left of uh, a Byzantine church. There were four of them. Now, in the foreground, I think, is the, the foundation for the, the fourth one. But there's three of them standing there. Three big, large. They're humongous. Next slide. And you can see by the, the people uh, visiting there how big those things are. And, and that's all that's... And that's, what's, uh, that's about what you see about the, uh, of old Philadelphia. Now, that was built around 600 or so um, A.D. And so it was a church... And can you imagine the dome on top of those four columns? It would have been, it would have been huge. Now, these, um, finally, Philadelphia was called the doorway, next slide, uh, to the east because you had to pass through it from a shipping uh, port in, in the west if you wanted to get to the east, to India specifically. And, and the main roads from nearly, uh, nearby commercial rich regions all converged at Philadelphia. Now, some of these facts, the earthquake and the doorway, will help us to understand why Jesus said what he said to the church, that, I've, that I have an open door for you, and, and about the pillars, and we'll come to that in a, a little bit later. Uh, last slide is the, um, where does it fit in as far as prophetically? Now, these seven churches, again, if you look at the 2,000 years that we've experienced since Christ and from when this, these letters were written, the Philadelphia church, nothing negative was said about the Philadelphia church. There was no scolding. 
but so it would fit into the period of around uh, 1800 to around 1900 it is the modern missionary movement when an open door to the world and missions went people went out taking the name of Jesus with them and so and William Carey in uh, 1793, he was uh, considered the father of modern missions, traveled to India. And so just in, in just 100 years, the Bible was translated and multiplied from about 50 to 250 languages. And mission organizations went from 7 to 100. Protestant missionaries were sent out to every corner of the world. Within a century, the number of professing Christians had more than doubled from 215 million to around 500 million. Christian outreach had truly become global, and truly the open door that Jesus talked about, uh, it was a prophetic word as well for that church. Now I want to look at this, um, this section, and I've got five things, the greeting, the good works, the challenge, the prophetic, and the reward. And so the greeting, first of all, once again, The the greeting um, in in some other churches, I suggested there's something in Jesus' greeting that they needed to hear, something about his character that they needed to be reminded of. In the case of Philadelphia, I think it might be that they needed to hear these things because they saw themselves as small and insignificant. Philadelphia was a small city. I'm thinking that Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia, the believers in Philadelphia were a small group. And they, they thought, and I, I take that by saying they had little strength. And that's how I would interpret that. And so I think they needed to hear these words uh, because they thought, like, what can we accomplish? We're so small. Some of the other churches seem to be doing great works, even expanding their work in the community. Ephesus was likely a mega church, and they had a lot going on. New believers class, maybe. Uh, a care for the widows, feeding the homeless, defending the weak, missionary training school, addiction support programs. Thyatira was also... Uh, doing a lot of uh, things in their community. Not only that, they were doing so much better than when they started. That's what Jesus said about them. And, and, but, and so Jesus took notice. But what about Philadelphia? What about Philadelphia? Are they too small to make a difference? Are they too small to make a difference? There's a group of six church leaders in the United States who started a support ministry called Small Churches Big Impact. They are all serving part... um, uh, This uh, ministry was started by uh, pastors all serving part-time in small congregations and they decided that they needed some positive encouragement which they call a collective. And here's their uh, rationale. Somehow... Regardless of what the church says otherwise, it seems like the message we keep getting as congregational leaders is size matters. We know firsthand small congregations have a wealth of riches to share with the wider church and the world. Though our common narrative tends to overlook these gifts, our congregations often develop a sense of inferiority and many clergy who minister in these congregations in these communities are isolated from colleagues 
and a sense of teamwork which contributes to a sense of inadequacy. And so we've come together as small churches being big impact collective to seek a different message and to identify and amplify the beauty and grace of small. We share successes, struggles, and resources. And what we found is that no matter the impact you think you're making, small churches make big impacts with God walking right alongside us. Does that apply to us? It might, right? I love it. I, I, I love that. Did you know that the most common expression of the church is a small church? The most common expression in the world of a church is a small church. So, the Philadelphia church isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. It may have been a church from Ephesus, a mega church. Jesus, in his greeting, expresses something to, that that church needs to hear. And he says these things. He who is holy. Now, this is a reference to Jesus' deity. Uh, in the Old Testament, this reference, uh, this reference to God of Israel. To whom will you compare me? This says in Isaiah 40:25. Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Jesus is reminding them that he and his Father are one. He is holy. And then he says, he who is true. Now from Numbers 23, 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? You could count on Jesus' word. God said it, I believe it, and so that settles it. You've heard that before, right? And truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. You know where that comes from? Who said that? Do you think that was a recent quote? No, that was from the 1600s. Pascal said that. He was a French mathematician. And then Jesus said, he who has the key to the door that he was the one with the key to the door. I think that's rather important, isn't it? The person with the key has the power and the authority to open or close, let you in or keep you out, right? They have the, the authority. Now Jesus identifies himself as the one with the key, that he is the one with the authority. Specifically, it's the key of David. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, Luke 1.32. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied to come. If you want to experience any part of the kingdom of God, you have to go through the man with the key. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14.6. Right? You have to go through the man with the key. As a matter of fact, Jesus said he's the door as well. Right? He's not only that doesn't he holds the key, but he's also the door. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. Now let's look at good works. We're going to come back to the open and shut doors in a little bit. Uh, but we really don't and, and because we really don't want to skip the open and closed doors. That's really important. And there's uh, it brings the old testament alive, actually, in 
in, in some of what is prophesied there. But after Jesus mentions these open and shut doors, and as a matter of fact, he mentions them twice. Um, but I, I do want to talk to you about their good works. And, and there's two mentioned here that they were obedient to God's word. That was the first one. You guys were obedient to God's word. You took what I said and you took it and you kept it. You were obedient. You did what it said. And Jesus was so uh, proud of them for that. He was so happy with them. Uh, those who truly love me are those who obey my commands. Whoever passionately loves me will be passionately loved by my Father, and I will passionately love him in return, and I will reveal myself to him, John 14, 21. Listen to what Sabrina wrote. Obedience. This is kind of a blog. Obedience. This is an area where I struggle. Anybody can identify? Come on. Come on. Both hands for me. Okay. Um, she says, obedience, this is an area where I struggle. Why is obedience so difficult? The answer is simple. I know the answer, but yet I struggle to be obedient to God's word. Now, I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments here. Those are much easier to follow than some of the other things I encounter, like selfishness and laziness. Ooh. How about gluttony? That one is tough for me as well. I love food. The word says that we are to love, uh, that we're not to love anything of this world. Yet every day is a struggle for me to uh, to be unselfish, to be active and not lazy, and not to be a glutton. Can you identify with Sabrina? Besides these little things, there are the big things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love God and then your neighbors yourself. That's difficult. Those are tough things to do, to be obedient to that. What? You love that weird neighbor that, that, that he's loud. He starts his snowblower at five in the morning. Oh, okay, that was me. So no, no, it was no, it wasn't five it wasn't five in the morning. I think I think it was eight o'clock. I waited till eight o'clock. Okay. And, and and then a new commandment Jesus said I give to you. Um Oh, what's the new commandment? Oh, we got to love one another. And sometimes that's really tough too, to love one another. Because when, when we get close, like, isn't it true that when we get close to somebody, we kind of know all their quirks? And then little things start to bug us, <laughs> right? And then, and then it's hard to love them because, because that little thing gets gets that becomes like a beam in our eye. That little thing becomes like a beam, and then we, ah, that's all we see. We see the beam, and we need to take that out of our eye and love the way Jesus loved, and the way Jesus asked us to love. And so they were obedient to God's word. The second thing that Jesus said, they did not deny his name. They maybe, you know, there would have been pressure to deny Jesus' name, Maybe. How many of us have denied Jesus in a weak moment? Peter denied Jesus when he was afraid in a weak moment. Jesus lovingly restored the wounded apostle. Have you denied Jesus by your actions or lack of actions or by your words or lack of words? Is there hope for those who have denied the Lord Jesus Christ?
yes, there is hope. Uh, Timothy Dalmuth uh, references an interesting book called Early Christian Martyr Stories by Brian Litvin. In Timothy's words, he starts off by noticing how terrible it was for those who denied Christ. This is in uh, between 100 and 200 in France. And there was persecution. He said that they were dejected, ugly, and full of disgrace. Moreover, they were ridiculed by the pagans as despicable cowards. But what amazed me was not the shame that these people endured, but what happened next. The deniers had been sent back to prison. They weren't released. They denied Christ and they didn't release them. They put them back in prison because they were cowards. But in God's amazing plan, they had not simply returned to rot in prison awaiting death, Rather, God sent the faithful ones to intermingle with them in prison and restore them. For through the martyrs, those that were scheduled to die, most of the deniers were reconceived and re-impregnated in the womb and restored to new life, learning at last how to confess. Alive now and fortified, they came before the judgment seat so the governor could question them again. And God, who does not desire the death of the sinner but shows favor to the repentant, made this moment sweet. Some of the Christians failed and denied the Lord. They were perhaps dejected and full of disgrace because they knew the words of Jesus when he said, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And yet, God didn't allow their story to end at that point. Some of them were ready to die for the Lord and others were not, but even the ones who denied Christ were still shown incredible grace and mercy from the Lord. Is there hope for those who have denied the Lord? Yes, God's not going to give up on you. Now, let's go to the challenge. Now, one of the challenges that the members of the church in Philadelphia faced, as with other churches in that area, were the Jews that lived there. Jesus says that they belonged, the, the Jews, they belonged to the synagogue of Satan. Oh, those, are, those are powerful words, aren't they? Uh, they're strong words. Obviously, the God of this age had blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The Jews rejected their Messiah, and they're still waiting. They're still waiting for their Messiah to come. One day, the Bible says, they will recognize Jesus. This is from uh, Zechariah 12.10. Now will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for over a firstborn. Now the interesting thing, after, in the context of that, after the 
following that verse, it says that everybody's going to be alone. They're going to be in their homes, even apart from their families. Everybody, nobody. So in other words, there's not going to be a mass thing where somebody talks them into, you know what, this was the Messiah and you missed him. And, and all of a sudden, all the Jews believe because somebody said that they're going to see him. And then individually, they're going to come to realize and they're going to be alone. Each one is going to be alone and realize that they had missed their opportunity. <clears throat> so can you imagine what it was like for those who were Jewish by birth, but they believed in Jesus? Can you imagine that? Because there would have been some that would have believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They would have accepted him there. And so they would have gone with their families to the synagogue on Saturday. Right? They would have used the Old Testament scrolls as their Bible. And they would have done all of their rituals and, and keeping the Jewish laws. using. Uh, and then on Sunday morning, those same ones would have gathered with the Christians. And accepting, you know, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, uh, and so, can you imagine what it would have been like for them? They would have suffered persecution. It was very likely that the Jewish Christians would have experienced incredible pressures and stress. They would be called apostates by their Jewish relatives, accused, uh, being accused of, uh, and then accusing the followers of Jesus of being thieves and deceivers. They insisted that Jews, not Christians, had an open door to the presence of God. It's through the Jews that you have access to God. Now, into this mess, Jesus, through John, writes a letter to these people and assures them, assures those that are in the church, including the Jews that have become Christians, indeed, that they are heirs of salvation. I, Jesus, am the one who holds the key of David. What I open, no one can shut, and what I shut, no one can open, and I am setting an open door before you, and no one is going to shut it. If you want to walk through it, you walk into the presence of the Lord. What was this key that unlocked the door? that could not be shut. In the book of Isaiah, there's a, 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 a reference to an individual um, and of, of his time named, named Shebna. Now, and he was in charge of the palace of the Judean king. Today we might call him the chief of staff. Right? So he was in charge. He had the key. Why replace Shebna? Well, he was more interested in promoting himself. He'd built for himself a sepulcher. He carved it out of rock. He wanted to be remembered as a great man in, in, in Judah, right? The, the king's right-hand man. I'm somebody. And so he got his tomb ready. And that's what they did in those days. If you wanted to be remembered, you built a great tomb and, and you had your name on there and everybody could see, oh, that was a great man. Well, this is, um, he'd, it was hewn out of rock, and he wanted to be remembered. Isaiah told him that the Lord would throw him away violently to a faraway country where he would eventually die alone and forgotten. He had great plans for himself. 
The prophet Isaiah said the Lord would replace him with a man named Eliakim, and the Lord would place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is exactly what Jesus is referencing. Eliakim, as the king's steward, would decide who could and who could not come before the king. Now, do you see what Jesus was telling the follower, his followers in Philadelphia? It's not a stretch to connect the dots this way. Shebna, representing the Jews that have rejected their Messiah, are thrown away violently from holding the key that opens the door to the presence of God. In fact, being of the, being of the synagogue of Satan is probably as far away as you can be thrown, isn't it? that you're of the synagogue of Satan. That's your father. Eliakim represents Jesus, who has the key of David, who opens the door for the church, inviting the church to come into the presence of God. In short, Christ has, gathered, has granted Christians, his followers, access to the Lord. No one can deprive them from that access. There's, um, which means that God gives them salvation. The key in Revelation does much more than open the door to um, uh, and, and talking with a, a national king in Christ's hand. The key opens the door into the presence of God, his kingdom, and eternal life. Not only does Christ open the door, he is the door, as I said before. And as John 14, 6 says, that nobody comes into the presence of God apart from him. So I want you to, let's look at the prophetic. And again, I, I want you to understand where this church fits in, um, the prophetic timeline. And I've explained that a little bit earlier, but I'm not going to say a whole lot about it, but I want to highlight it here because I get excited knowing what it's all about. And, uh, that, you know, those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, let them hear and see, right? And... Uh, verse 10 and 11, I want to read them again because they're absolutely amazing. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The hour of trial. What, what is that? Can you tell me what that is? I, th that is the great tribulation. There is trouble coming. There's trouble coming to this world. And it's God's wrath being poured out because they have rejected Christ. It, it, they have rejected God's rule and God is going to pour his wrath out. That's coming. And, and, and Jesus said, I'm going to keep you from that. You don't have to experience that because you've been faithful. And then, behold, I'm coming quickly. What? I'm coming quickly. That's like, that's the second coming. And so because of their faithfulness, Jesus keeps them from this tribulation, from this testing that will be experienced all over the world. It will be severe. God's wrath being poured out. You might wonder why Jesus saves this church from testing but didn't save Smyrna. Because Smyrna, he said, you're going to be tested for 10 days. And some of you will be killed. And it was severe, right? God has his reasons. Either way, he receives the glory. He receives 
praise and honor. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is in the context of the coming day of the Lord, which is this tribulation we're talking about here. He said that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Paul goes on to say that they should comfort each other with this truth. In a similar way, Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia that these members will be spared from what's coming on the earth. Now, when, when we look at that prophetically, it totally makes sense. Why do I say that? Because Jesus didn't come yet. Jesus said he was coming quickly, and it's been 2,000 years or 1,900 years, and he's not come yet. Right? And so when we look at it prophetically, as far as the church ages, if that was, if, if that was the missionary church age, which was from uh, 1870 to 1900 or so, then it totally fits in there that Jesus said hey I'm coming quickly and there's only one more church age and that's the one we're going to look at next week which is the Laodicean church neither hot nor cold so I'm going to spew you out of my mouth right so if Jesus was coming quickly after the Philadelphia talking to the church in Philadelphia how about the church of Laodicea Jesus He's reaching for the door, man. Like Jesus is reaching for the door and he's ready to open it and he's ready to come back and take his children home. Well, let's look at the reward. And I, I like... There, Jesus pours out um, so much on these faithful believers in this small, insignificant church. He pours out his grace. First of all, those who think they have the keys to God's presence, that's the Jews of the synagogue of Satan, uh, will be shown in a very public way that they are wrong and that the followers of Jesus were right. There will be uh, a humbling as they come and worship before. Now, it says here that um, he will cause them, I uh, will make them come and worship before your feet. Not worshiping the Christians, worshiping the Lord Jesus, but in front, right in front of the believers that were right all along. Because the believers, they'll also be worshiping the Lord Jesus. Right? But the believers will see them come and they will fall down at Jesus' feet and they will worship him. And they will be humiliated. The followers of Jesus will see that right before their eyes. And the Jews will know without a doubt that Jesus loves the non-Jews, the Gentile. Second, they will receive a crown. Now the specifics as to what crown this is isn't explained here, but I think it's a reference to the idea of an athlete receiving recognition for successfully coming in first place because they receive a crown in, or a gold medal. Right in our day, it's a gold medal, and um, and so I think they will hear at that time, "Well done, good and faithful servant." And then third, the overcomer will be made to be a pillar in God's temple. Now I'm sure this is made in reference to the many earthquakes in the areas, because as I mentioned before, often 
all that would be left of the city would be the pillars of the temple. And so what is, he, what is Jesus saying? I'm going to make you a pillar in God's temple and you will not be moved. It will be your home. Now what a beautiful uh, picture. Uh, what a beautiful statement for those who overcome. Fourth, they shall go out no more. That means there will be no more striving, no more trials, no more death. It's fellowship with God. In the beginning, man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden and fellowship was broken. The presence of God would not and could not be experienced in the same way after sin had entered the world. But now, there will be no more leaving, no more separation. There will be sweet fellowship with the Lord. Fifth, they are imprinted with God's name and the God's city. Now you see it everywhere, don't you? Jackets and hats with uh, company names on them, right? And, and, and you see that everywhere. Um, company names on trucks. Um, unless they've had an accident and somebody sprays them, sprays the company name out because they don't want to advertise, Right? And uh, I've seen that before. But then, you, now, you, the town of Provost, the RCMP, the garbage truck, Hutch's contracting. What? It's all about ownership. Maybe tattoos will be a thing in heaven because God's going to write his name on you. Right? And the name of his city. It could be. Sixth, Jesus will write his new name on you. A new name. His, his, Jesus is going to have a new name. Now, this isn't difficult. This isn't, for me, this isn't difficult to understand. Because how many names does Jesus have now? I mean, right? I mean, it's kind of, I think it's kind of funny because I was looking this up and there, there's a certain group. Um, I'm not going to name them. Um, but uh, they reference, they say, oh, th that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean there's going to be a new name because Jesus said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Well, what is that talking about? Think about that. What is that talking about, Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Does that mean Jesus can't have a new name? It doesn't mean that. It means it's talking about Jesus' character, that Jesus is the same, that you can count on him, that you can depend on him because he doesn't lie, that what he says is true. And he is faithful to you. Jesus doesn't change, and so we can embrace him. He's ours. He saved us. It doesn't have anything to do with a physical name. I mean, we know Jesus by Christ and Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, Beloved Son, Redeemer, Savior, and the list goes on. We can count on Jesus, and we can count on his word because his character doesn't change. We don't know what Jesus' new name is going to be. That's a surprise. That's a mystery. But if he wants to put a new name on me that belongs to him, well, I'm for that. I want his new name on me. Amen? I'm going to receive it, and I'm going to show it off proudly. Well, here's our final challenge. Here at New Hope, now, we're not a big church. In fact... Sometimes we feel like we're pretty small and insignificant. 
For you have little strength. What does Jesus say about faith, though? With faith the size of a mustard seed? Some amazing things. Mountains can be moved, even with something small, right? So it doesn't matter that we're small. And as Jesus said to Paul, he says to us, My grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so then we will boast most gladly about our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may reside in us. Amen? I, I, I want everybody to stand. Okay? Because when there... You, you know what Jesus said about the church in Philadelphia? He said that the, there's going to be some shaking going on and these pillars are going to stand and, and, and that's what's going to remain. Do, do you want to stand? Do you want to be a pillar that stands? Do you want to be one that Jesus gives that makes a pillar in the house of his God? Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for, for this message to this church. They felt that they were insignificant and small, but you had a big message for them. They, and you told them to hang on because you are coming and you have rewards with you. And so, Father, I, I pray that for each one that's standing, that they will experience uh, your presence and your spirit in their life. I pray that, they would, that you would make them to stand and uh, that they would be shining lights in a dark world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, just... This is my, probably my favorite, my favorite um, benediction. And so if I use it more than once, you'll excuse me, but here it goes. May the God who shakes heaven and earth, whose spirit blows through the valleys and the hills, whom death could not contain and who lives to disturb and bring us life, bless us with power to endure, to hope and to love. Amen. Amen. Remember um, that anybody that wants to pray, come to the front and we'll pray together. That would be awesome. Okay, God bless.